Welcome to the next message from Encounter Church. For more information about our church, visit us online at EncounterPGH.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the message. So, how many of you guys know that Lent started this week on Wednesday? So, Ash Wednesday. Did anybody, does anybody celebrate Lent specifically? Does anybody in the room, is that a tradition that you've been a part of? Ash Wednesday, kind of anybody participate in that? The fish fries, the fish sandwiches in the past. Okay, so um, I I don't <clears throat> I don't come from a tradition um, that celebrates Lent specifically, but as I have um, you know grown into an adult and have studied studied church history, studied scripture, um, you know obviously have come across people, particularly living in Pittsburgh, which is a heavily Catholic city. Um, you know. You, I think most of us have probably seen people walking around with the ash on their foreheads, you know, like this week, my daughter said, dad, what is Ash Wednesday about? And so I got a chance to kind of have a conversation with her about that. And, um, you know, throughout the years, I've really been intrigued by Lent in general and what it means and, and, the the symbolism of it. And, um, and so for a couple of years now, I have wanted to to do a message series that's not specifically about Lent, but would kind of incorporate the concept of Lent leading through Easter. And so um, this Wednesday, this past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, which is the first day of Lent, which takes you through 40 days and leads up to uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus on Easter. And so we're starting a message series today called Redemption, which is a six-week message series that is going to be tracing various stories of redemption throughout Scripture that will ultimately lead us into Easter. And the reason for that is is because God's story is a story of redemption, um, unfolding in lives, unfolding in families, unfolding in nations throughout the millennia. And so we're going to be exploring stories of redemption that we see throughout Scripture, throughout the Bible, that's going to pave a road of redemption all the way up to Easter, where we really celebrate the greatest redemption and rescue story that has ever been told. The truth be told, we love redemption stories, right? As people, as human beings, we love stories of redemption. Um, We eat them up, right? In movies, in TV, in books, um, even in public life. There's just something about seeing people who have made mistakes, some terrible mistakes in their lives, who've done awful things. We love hearing stories about how they get a second chance and have a chance to kind of make things right, how they have a chance to kind of become a new person, right? I think of recent movies, um, like, or maybe not even recent, some of the most iconic movies. We think, I think of like Darth Vader in Star Wars, right? This horribly, like, evil, vile person. We were just talking about this the other day. Like, there's a, the greatest villains of all time. Darth Vader was number one, at least for a long time, right? But at the end, spoiler alert, at the end of the last Star Wars movie, the original trilogy, he makes a decision that causes him to redeem himself. And that sounds tropey, right? Like, oh, it's easy for you to just do one thing. And that's not really what we're going to be talking about today. But we love the idea of someone having an opportunity to, to kind of, in the end at least, 
like make right for all that was wrong. Recently, we see similar with Kylo Ren in, in the new Star Wars, Rise of Skywalker. We see it in the movie, The Shawshank Redemption. There are so many stories of redemption and we love seeing that. There's just something about it that we love. And the reason for that is because we were created by a God who loves to redeem broken things. Like, God, it's part of who he is. God is a redeemer. He is, that's what he loves to do. And so we love it. I believe that it's wired into us because we were created by him. And so we see it all throughout the Bible in different ways. Now, I said this, this line, this phrase of that God's story is a story of redemption. What do I mean by that? That God's story is a story of redemption. Well, scripture, what we know of as the Bible is God revealing himself to the world to the world who is God and what do we know of him when we read the bible that is God revealing himself to to people revealing himself that's what we could say is God's story and what does he reveal about himself throughout the bible well one of the main factors one of the main themes woven all throughout the story of the bible is a story of redemption And so I want to give you a quick history lesson real quick before we get into really the meat of today's message. The origins of the concept of redemption that we see in the Bible really unfolds and can be traced back to the earliest ancient culture in Scripture where God reveals himself in Genesis, right? So right after the fall in the garden, where Adam and Eve, this picture of the Garden of Eden, regardless of whether it is a literal story or a figurative story, the fall of man takes place, and there's this brokenness, this disconnect, right? There's this disconnect between God and man. And we're left with this story of going, well, I guess everything is going to be awful for the rest of humanity now because there's this disconnect from their creator. And so we begin to see these tribes of people pop up. And there's this patriarchal society that that is born where there's the leader of a clan, which is the kind of the most oldest and wise member, the father of that group, right? And what happens is God reveals himself to this one particular tribe, this one particular clan. Now, what happened in this time is that if a family member were to be marginalized, either because of poverty, because maybe they got they, they ran out of money and they were on the outside of the outside now and they were no longer a part of the family, either due to enslavement, like they were captured by someone and, uh, and removed from the family, they became a slave either because they couldn't pay their bills and they were made a slave to pay it off, or because they were in poverty, what the patriarch of the family could do was he could mobilize his resources to go and claim that person and make them a member of the family again. He could restore that, that marginalized person, that person who was removed from the family, who no longer had rights to the family, who no longer could use the family name. And he, as the patriarch of the family, could say, I restore you and mobilize his resources to bring that person back into their rightful family place. And so all throughout scripture, what we see is stories of redemption coming alive and brought to its climax in the New Testament through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's from this perspective, I want you guys to pay attention real close to this. It's from this perspective that God is presenting himself as the patriarch of the clan who has announced his intention to redeem his lost family members. Not only... Has he agreed to pay whatever ransom is required, but he's also sent his most cherished member of his household to accomplish his intent, his firstborn son. 
And so you can see that it starts way back in the Old Testament, the first time God reveals himself to Abraham, right? The first time he, he reveals himself and he says, he says, I am the patriarch of this clan and I will make a family and you are separated and I will bring you back in. And throughout the entire story of the Bible, we see ultimately through Jesus Christ, God makes a way to redeem all of us. I love that. It's an incredible story and it's still unfolding today as we join God in his mission of rescue and redemption. And when we see it that way, it gives us reason to want to rescue our family members and our friends, you know, and the people who are in our lives who are far from God until the fullness of creation is renewed. And so this week, we're going to start with our first story. And I'm going to guess that most of us in the room have probably never even heard this story or don't have much experience with it. And this week's message is entitled, A Strange Romance. A Strange Romance. How many of you have ever read the book of Hosea? Just a few of us. And it's, it's kind of tucked away in the Bible, and it's a very strange story. And so it's a strange romance. So I want to give you a little bit of history here. Uh, it's told by a prophet of God named Hosea. And a prophet's role in the Old Testament particularly was to be a messenger or a mouthpiece of God, specifically to kings of the Israelite people and really the nation itself. Now, often, often these guys would be incredibly dramatic and theatrical in their, uh, in their message giving. And sometimes it was a metaphor. So, for example, um, there were moments where uh, they would, you know, throw a stick on the ground and then it would, and then, and then they would say, just as I have thrown this stick on the ground, that symbolizes this or various things like that. They would be dramatic. They would, you know, shave their head and their beard or they would rip <laughs> their clothes and they would do various things in order to show the significance of the moment. Well, the story of Hosea is probably the most theatrical and most dramatic of all. And it's, uh, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But ultimately, it was designed to help the listener understand what God was saying to them. And when we pick up the account of Hosea, and I encourage all of you guys to open your Bibles and to find Hosea, because I think it'll be really good for you to read. It's in the Old Testament, Hosea, and you can do it in, uh, in, a, in a physical Bible. You can also open up your Bible app. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the prophets section. And when we pick up the account of Hosea, the kingdom of Israel was split into two. How many of you knew that Israel was divided into two nations because of a coup? Again, random, a couple people, right? So the, the kingdom of Israel was broken into two, and Hosea was prophesying to the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom were the ones who were the farthest from God. The northern kingdom had forgotten who God was or really had become just corrupted. They had become, it was a nation kind of like Greece is right now, where it's a secular nation that has an Orthodox, Greek Orthodox religion, but most people don't even know who God is, and they only go to church like for obligation, and they don't have any sense of religious you know, ritual built into them, right? And so this is what it was like for the Northern Kingdom. But not only were they going through the ritual of things without their heart connected to it, they had also become incredibly wicked and corrupt. They were worshiping idols from other gods. They, had, they engaged in temple prostitution of other gods. So there are other temples set up to where they would actually go and engage in sexual activity inside the temple of those other gods. There was political corruption that was going on. There was the marginalization of the poor that was going on. There was the stealing of the poor, robbing of them, sanctioned by their own government that was going on in the northern kingdom. And they were integrating the cultures of nations around them that they had already driven out. 
So God, when they sent the Israelite people to the promised land, when Moses brought them there, and then when they crossed the Jordan River and they kind of waged this campaign to take the promised land, God did it and said, I want you to drive these people out because they are abhorrent to me, because the things that they do are evil and detestable, right? And I don't want you to ever do them. And now look at the Northern Kingdom. They have essentially been colonized by those same people. And so it's from this place, right, that Hosea enters the story. And up to this point, multiple prophets were sent to call them to repentance, to no avail. And God eventually decrees that his people will be conquered by the Assyrians and they will be taken into exile. Now, it all sounds awful and it sounds terrible. How does this have anything to do with redemption? Well, it's in this moment that God chooses to inject his redemptive love in the story of Hosea. And so we're going to read right now from Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and immediately I want you to remember that theatrical, dramatic, metaphorical display. But in this case, it's not so metaphorical. Now verse 2 says this in Hosea 1, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, I want you to go and I want you to marry a woman of promiscuity. I'm sorry, what God? (laughs) I want you to go And I want you to marry a woman of promiscuity. And I want you to have children of promiscuity. Why? Here's the metaphor. For the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. All right, so immediately we see, right, this dramatic metaphor painting this picture of of the relationship between God and his people. God is essentially saying, like, I want you, Hosea, to be a living, literal example to me, to my people. And God is positioning himself in this metaphor as the righteous, faithful husband in this relationship, engaging in a relationship with an unfaithful, promiscuous people. And God calls them promiscuous because they have proven time and time again to sell their birthright as God's chosen people for the pleasures of the world around them, sometimes literally selling themselves like a prostitute sells themselves. And he's basically saying, hey, Hosea, go marry a prostitute as an example of what it's like to be your God. I want you to just imagine that for a second. Like, imagine for a second that God, like in a prayer time with you, God says, I want you to go do something so blatant, so blatant so that your friends will see how far away from me they are. Like, could you imagine that for a second? Like, I want you to go marry a prostitute. (laughs) I'm like, mm, no, nah. nah, I don't think so. I'm good. I'm good. But here's the thing, is that God tells Hosea to do this as from a place of resentment. God wasn't looking at him going, I want you to go do that so they can see what it's like because I'm an angry. That's not it. He was doing it from a place of redemption. Now, some people think the book of Hosea is figurative language, like that it was just a metaphor, that like he didn't really go marry this woman of promiscuity. Some scholars think that. Because they feel like, you know, well, there's no way that God would send someone to go do something that crazy. Some scholars believe that Hosea did actually marry her, but that, that the woman, Gomer is her name, uh, that we see in the Bible that, I know, <coughs> Gomer. Some scholars believe that, that while Hosea did marry this woman, that she maybe wasn't promiscuous until he married her. But that's actually can't be true because later we're going to see in, in chapter 3 that it says, I want you to go back to her and I want you to, 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 to find the woman of adultery. 
So later on, we see that, that, that he marries this woman, but then, and she's a woman of promiscuity when he marries her, but then later on, he has to go back again, and she's cheated on him and left him. So, so it doesn't make sense that she would have been, that he would have married her and she would have been not promiscuous beforehand. So many scholars, and I believe this as well, believe in a literal perspective. Because it, it reads that way narratively. The, the book just opens up and it says, the first time God spoke to Hosea, he said, I want you to go marry a woman of promiscuity. Now, a woman of promiscuity means that she either has a reputation for having slept with multiple partners possibly a prostitute. It doesn't say that specifically. She may be selling herself. She Maybe she was involved in the temple prostitution. It could be any number of things. Maybe she's not actively engaged in it. We don't really know. But the fact that she engaged in that obviously was kind of distasteful, right? The Jewish people, generally speaking, are not going to do that. They wanted to marry people, men or women, who were, who were uh, not engaging in those activities. But it technically wasn't something that was like against the law, if you will, against the, the, the righteous law. Now, priests, priests were prohibited from marrying promiscuous women, but prophets did not have that specific, that specific uh, mandate on them. So here's what I would say is that holding a literal view reinforces the central message ultimately that Hosea is delivered. Because uh, imagine the audience hearing the words of Hosea, but also seeing Hosea live them out. Imagine the power in that moment. Like God is saying to you that you are a promiscuous people and yet he still loves you. Just like I still love my wife. Imagine that for a second. Like the, the force and the power of that. Now why would God have Hosea do that? Why would God like have Hosea? Because that would be painful for him. Imagine that. Like imagine you knowing you're going to marry a woman, you knowing that she was going to be unfaithful to you. Or marrying a husband, knowing he would be that way. Like knowing ahead of time. And that God said, I have this for you, but it's for a greater picture. How many of us, how many of us would willingly be a servant to God in something so, so painful? And yet now here we are, thousands of years later, being able to read into this space of redemption story and seeing God's character in this. Let's look down in Hosea chapter 3 verses 1 through 5, and we're going to see the core of Hosea. Why would God have Hosea do this? Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord said to me, go again. And I think Hosea is going, oh man, come on. Go again and show love to a woman who was loved by another man and is an adulteress. And scholars believe this is the same woman. He was married to her, already knew he was getting into. They were married and had three kids. Right? The scripture tells us in chapter 1 that he does have more kids. So he's got more kids with this woman. She apparently cheats on him, goes and lives with another, another man. And now God says, go back. Go back again. Show love to her. And it says this. Why? Just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. And this is weird. And love raisin cakes. <laughs> right? <clears throat> yes. And, I'll, and I can give you a little explanation there. I like raising cakes. You know? <laughs> Go again. Show love to a woman who is loved by another man is an adulteress. As painful as that is, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's hard to like stay serious there, God. <laughs> here's, now here's the thing. Here's the thing. We are no different 
we in this room are no different. The world that we live in, the people that we know who are far from God, those of us who are in the room who are close to God, we are no different. Think of all the ways that we forget God and that we spit in his face. In our past, particularly those of us in the room who follow Jesus, who are disciples of Christ. In our past, how we have, have forgotten him, how we have spit in his face. In our present moments, the times that we forget about God. And even in our future, the times when we will forget about him. And how our lifestyle chooses to actively rebel against him. What does it mean to turn to other gods? It's not just idols. It could be other idols, but money. We make money in our, in our, in our world in our society, even in our own lives, we make money a God. We make sex. We worship sex in our society. Power, you know, the power that we can get over people or the power, the influence we can amass. Just simple pleasure in general. We worship convenience. We worship pleasure. And even other religions, other gods that we can worship now, raisin cakes is something, something funny <laughs> to us, but to them it was not. To them it was very specific. It meant something very specific to them. To them it was both religious indulgence, but also tempting pleasures. And there are stories in Scripture, in other moments, <clears throat> in Chronicles, in Samuel, where, where they would be enticed by other nations, these nations, the Moabites, the Amorites, the ones whose lifestyles that they have now begun to integrate into their life, okay? That God said, don't do that. Don't marry the people from, other, from these other nations because they will, they will tempt you away to their gods. And they would be tempted when they, there was one time when they had just come away from a big battle and they went down into this valley and these people came. The tribes of these other nations sent their, their, their women, sent their most attractive people and brought gifts of raisin cakes to them and had a big party, like a big block party and set up music and a stage with speakers and they were dancing. And in that moment, the men of the, tri- of the tribe of Israel fell away from God and got tempted and went and married these other women and began to introduce these other religions and these other things in. The dang raisin cakes! <laughs> So here we are now, centuries later, where the the nation of Israel has a king and it has a temple and they've got a kingdom and they've got laws and they've got regulations and they've got society and life in the cities where they live and they have fallen so far away from God. And what does God say to them? I'm going to send them a prophet named Hosea who's going to marry a woman who's going to be the perfect picture of what Israel does to their God. He cheats on him. He leaves him. He abandons his kids, or she abandons his kids, and he says, go back to them because I love them. Why? Because just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods, God says, go to her again, just as the Lord loves them, and though they turn away. So what does he do? Verse 2, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. In order to even get her back, he had to actually pay a dowry price for her. His wife, <laughs> the one that like left him and another husband paid for. That was, it's weird for us to think about that, but this is the society that they were in at that time. He actually went to the woman who left him, who willingly slept with another man, who's probably having kids with another person, and went and did what he needed to do to bring her back. I said to her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be promiscuous or belong to any man. And here's the point that's important. And I will act the same way 
toward you. Why? Because here's what's about to happen. Verse 4, for the Israelites must live many days without a prince, without a king, without sacrifice, without a sacred pillar, without the ephod or household idols. Let's pause there for a second. What does that mean? They're about to go into exile. They have reached the end of the rope for them. They have gone so far away that God is allowing the nation of Assyria, the Syrian army, to come and to overtake them. They have done everything. Their consequences now have reached a point of no return, and they're about to be conquered, and God knows it. And God is using Hosea to say to them just before that happens, don't worry, I love you. Even though this is happening, I love you. I am forgiving you. I will be back to you. And this is what it says here, verse 4, for the Israelites must live without many days, without all the things that they hold precious, even though they've taken it for granted. All the things we love of God. We love his peace. We love his mercy. We love his goodness. We love his forgiveness. We love the identity we have in Christ. Even though we love them, we forget about them. We take them for granted all the time. But afterward, verse 5, the people of Israel will return. And they will seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. God will not give up on us because he knows what's possible for us. So there's this interesting story, this prophet Isaiah, like I think it's like 11 chapters, like tucked away in the Old Testament, kind of near the end of the Old Testament, after you've gone through a bunch of kings and all these stories, and you kind of feel like if you're reading through the Bible, if you're like me, if you start reading through the Old Testament, you kind of get this hurried nature where you want to like get through it because you want to get to the New Testament where it starts to feel narrative again and you know, things like that. But you can skip over and realize this story of redemption here. That God is showing an incredible like, part of who he is and what he is saying to his people is that no matter how unfaithful we are to him, it will never, he will never stop loving us. He will always continually come after us and he will do whatever is necessary to rescue us. And so what I want to do as we kind of wrap up today is I want to talk about three things, three, three things that this story highlights. God's undying love for us highlights three things. Number one, it highlights his character. We see his character so beautifully in this story. In verse 1, go again. Go again and show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just because as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. It shows his character. Our actions don't define who God is. We like to think it does sometimes. We forget the situations we have put ourselves in you know, by the choices that we make, whether as Christians or people out in the world, they blame God for everything. And God is always the same. He is faithful. He is a love. He is full of love. He's kind. He's he's always willing to take people back. His character, just as the Israelites have turned away from him, go again. God is always coming. God's undying love that we see in the story of Hosea highlights his character. Number two, God's undying love for us highlights his intent. We see here in verse 2, So I went and I paid the price. It's easy for him to say, I will do anything for you, but when push comes to sub, does he? In this story, he does. Hosea was the perfect illustration of God's character and his intent. Not only did he love his wife, even after she abused the relationship, even after she willingly left him, even after she abandoned her children, even after all of those things and embarrassed him. Because when a woman in the story, in this particular society, when a woman left the man and went off and did that, that was the reputation 
We see like in the Old Testament, back with like Abraham and things like that, when someone would do something, they would cut them off from the family because it was an embarrassment. We were just watching a show last night called Homeland. And in this story, which comes out of the, this Middle Eastern culture, right? This patriarchal Middle Eastern culture. The, the, the man in this family, the father and his son had done something to embarrass the father. And the father had an obligation to cut him off from the family. That's what we see in this story. But what does God do? God doesn't cut his people off. Like God says, no, I'm different than that. Not only am I have the character of it, my intent is to restore my people. I will pay back. I will do whatever is necessary. So he does. So God's undying love for us highlights his character. It highlights his intent. And probably the most significant physical space of it is that it also highlights his faithfulness. I said to her in verse 3, you are to live with me many days. And he's like, here's my goal for you is that you not be promiscuous anymore or you belong to any other man. God says to us, God says to us, I don't want you to belong to money. I don't want you to belong to sex or to power. I don't want you to be known as someone who is owned by these things. I want you to belong to me. And he says this, and I will act the same way toward you. God's undying love for us highlights his faithfulness. God is always faithful. God is always faithful. I've seen it in my life. You have seen it in yours. I've seen it in other Christians' lives. I've seen it in the lives of those people who are far from God. And in their moments of desperation, after they have abused God, after they've spit on his, in his face, after they have yelled horrible insults to him, throw their hands in the air and say, God, help me. And God shows up anyway. I've seen it. God's character, his intent, and his faithfulness. And so if you're looking for like a main idea, what is the story of Hosea about? It's this, is that God responds to our fickleness with faithfulness. God responds to our fickleness. Like one day we're like, God, I love you, right? Like on Sunday, every week we show up for church on Sunday and we're like, yes, God, I want more of you. God, I want to sing to you. God, you are faithful. Yeah, I'm reminded of your goodness. I'm reminded. I want, I'm going to spend more time in prayer this week. I'm going to spend more time. Like I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to watch that show or I'm not going to go out and get drunk. This, I'm not going to go sleep with my girlfriend. What, I'm not going to do those things. And then like later in the week, we're like, huh, I'm good. And I'm like back to it, right? Like, but what does God do? God's like, I love you. You're welcome in my house anytime. Come back. I want more for you. God responds to our fickleness with faithfulness. I said at the beginning of this message, and you'll see this all throughout the series, God's story is a story of redemption. Unfolding in lives and families and nations throughout the millennia. And the story of Hosea particularly is a powerful image of God expressing his relentless love and his unwillingness to give up on us. And so there's not a lot of practical, like, I'm not going to say, like, do this, do that, because I think it's important for this to just sit. And we will discuss here in a moment, but it's important to just allow this to settle in our hearts, understanding who, God's is, who God is, his character his intent. He intends. And, he, and we see that his intent was fulfilled through Jesus. But even now, he intends constantly to redeem us. 
He is actively working in us. It's not enough for him to just go, well, I'll wait for you to come back. Like he's always working to bring us back. Always working. He's faithful. God responds to our fickleness with faithfulness. Would you pray with me? God, as we begin this journey throughout your scripture, throughout the Bible, we see your story as a story of redemption. You have revealed to us in the Bible who you are to us, how we can interact with you. And one of the key elements of that is redemption. And we see in this story, the story of Hosea, this crazy story of your response to your people. Yes, there are consequences for our choices. Yes, there are consequences for actions. And sometimes it is painful. Sometimes the things that we do cause us incredible pain and sorrow. And that's life. And yet, in those spaces, you tell us that you love us, you, that you care about us, that you will never leave us, that you won't forsake us, that you're faithful. God, I pray that right now for each one of us, this would be a foundational moment. I pray that this would sink deep into the core of who we are, that we would recognize your redemptive love, that you, your character is flawless, that your intention is always to seek us back, to pull us back, to redeem us, to always call us into a greater depth of love and, uh, and re- re- uh, just receiving from you. God, let us just see your faithfulness. And whatever that means for each one of us, let, it, let us you know, have a change of heart. Let us see the things that are maybe that we are being unfaithful to you. Whatever those spaces are, would you shine on them, God, and and, and cause us to, to want to act in those spaces, God. Let us not be like the nation of Israel that after time, after time, after time, ignored the words of the prophets and would fail to repent. God, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that way. I want to hear you speaking to me long before, long before it becomes problems. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your redemption. And ultimately, we thank you for Jesus that gives us a way back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you call Encounter Church Home or if you'd like to partner with us to support the work that God is doing here, you can take advantage of our online giving option. Just go to EncounterGiving.com. Also, stay up to date with us throughout the week by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EncounterPGH. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.